0: Your questions run the gamut today on Your Money, Your Wealth podcast number 376. How does social security work for self-employed small business owners? Is there a solo 401k that allows after-tax contributions? How much cold, hard cash should you be keeping on hand? Why do advisors suggest buying a fixed-indexed annuity? And how do qualified charitable distributions work? Finally, is it a good idea to prepay the mortgage on a real estate investment? And how do you calculate the tax on a home you inherited? I'm producer, Andy Last, with the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine CPA. You can visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click Ask Joe and Big Al on air to send the fellows your questions as an email or as a voice message. Hello,
1: YMYW team. This is Jim from Santa Cruz calling. The last time I submitted a question, Joe just tore it to shreds on air, but fortunately, I'm a fearless glutton for punishment, so here comes another one. Our friends Jack and Diane are deciding on a social security strategy. Each is 62 years old, because Diane was the primary earner, she plans to claim its benefits at age 70. Jack was self-employed, but since he is now working less than 45 hours per month, he's tempted to claim his benefits now. He expects to earn around $2,000 a month for the balance of this year, which exceeds the $1,630 a month allowed by the SSA. Jack understands that 50% of the excess benefits will be withheld. Our question, how does the Social Security Administration determine Jack's earnings? Their website indicates that benefits are withheld in the first months of the following year, but tax returns often aren't filed until April, or until October with an extension. How and when does the Social Security Administration determine the amount of withheld benefits for self-employed persons? Thanks in advance for your answer and your consistently great show.
0: It was nice to actually hear Jim from Santa Cruz and this time he actually was calling. He always says in his emails, Jim from Santa Cruz calling, this time he actually did.
2: Wow. And he just came out blazing with a very (laughs) technical question. He did. Wait, you got an answer? I'm going to (laughs) pass this one over to Al.
3: Okay. Well, the Social Security Administration, if you are before full retirement age and uh, you're making more than about $20,000, then you're making too much to get your full benefits. And you'd have to give some of those back. I guess if you're a W-2 employee, the IRS knows pretty quickly because Because the w 2s Yeah, withholding and W-2s are filed and IRS gets a copy. Those are filed by January 31st. But if you're self-employed, it's a whole different ballgame, right? Because you you may literally extend your tax return and not file until October 15th. So in that case, the IRS is not going to know until October 15th. So that's the point where they'd either withhold from your future benefits or they also, you do get a, a letter uh, requesting a payment back to catch it up. And if you can't pay it, they'll just withhold from future payments. But it just extends the period of time from January,
2: February to maybe even October. So why does he care? I'm, I guess, what is he trying to solve for is is where I'm at.
3: Well, he I guess his question, well, he what he read was the withholding of benefits starts in the following year so you don't get a full year of benefits but self-employed IRS isn't going to know until you file your tax return so that was his question how how do they know and the answer is they don't they they can't they can't make this calculation until you actually file your return when you're self-employed
2: right and so here's what happens let's say that jack exceeds the the earnings limit right so you can make what is it 19.5 give yeah. or take yeah yeah And so any dollar over that or every two dollars earned over that, they take a buck back of of your benefit. And so Jack is self-employed and then he gets a big contract. Right. So he's claiming his benefit because he doesn't think he's going to make a lot of money. Correct. You know, hey, I'm winding down. I'm working 45 hours per month. I mean, that's what Alan works. (laughs) And that's still that's still a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's too much. So
0: 45
2: hours, 45 hours a month. And so, right. And then at the end of the year, all of a sudden, you know, a contract lands in his uh, plate and then he makes a couple hundred grand, but he's already claiming the benefit. And so it's like, okay, well, how does the social security administration know? Well, they don't, you're going to get your benefit again, the following year, until you file your tax return. Once you file your tax return, then they see the income. And then guess what? all of that money gets paid back. So you're not going to receive any type of benefit. So let's say Jack retires totally. It does not make a dime. And then he's waiting for that social security benefit to come, but it's not going to come to him because he has to pay back what he, it's not like they're taking it back from him. What they're really doing is doing a calculation on a month by month basis of saying, since you made this much over that limit, We're taking the dollar back, but we're assuming that you didn't claim it at all. You're just giving it back that you didn't claim it. So you didn't really claim it at 62, right? You claimed it at 63. So you're going to receive a higher benefit once all of that benefit is paid back, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. So you're right. You haven't lost the money. It's just that the money you got, you weren't really entitled to. And so you either pay it back or you have it withheld from future benefits. So that that's the concept. And you're right, Joe, you don't get penalized. You'll get, it's as if you never filed for those benefits. So you will get the money back
2: eventually. Okay. Very cool. Uh, good friend, um, Priya. She writes back in, Alan, from Irvine, California. She goes, hello, Joe, Big Al, and Andy. Thanks for the wonderful podcast and TV show. I've learned so many concepts, new tax laws, certifications of key financial terms. One of the information I got from your TV show, she she's plugging the TV show, Big Al. That she
3: is. How about that? that.
2: <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, we have a TV
3: show. Eighth <laughs> season seems hard to believe but yeah we've been doing this eight years the tv show yeah. and and the and the podcast radio it's been a lot longer Long, well
2: yeah a lot longer than that <laughs> so, yeah eight years i think we got eight views <laughs> yeah between your mom and my mom that covers it one of the information i got from your tv shows regarding 80 ab 150 oh wow that's getting deep <laughs> you remember talking about ab 150 big al
3: ab uh, yeah i do
2: in one of the episodes, Big Al mentioned AB 150 and saving taxes. I haven't heard of it, so I did a little research on Google and some YouTube videos. I found out that applies to me, as I have a one-person s My CPA forgot to mention this, but at least I caught it before the business tax filing deadline and contributed to get the PTE credit for 2021. All right, very good. Saving some money here. Uh, yep, now... Yep. For the information she wants to provide us, for a caller from episode 372, uh, Heather in Irvine, California. I wonder if Heather and Priya are buddies. <laughs> she had many questions regarding Solo 401k, SEP IRA, Mega Backdoor Roths, et cetera. Again, I learned about Solo 401k from your podcast in 2020. I spent so many hours trying to figure out Solo 401k plan that allows after-tax contributions. Big brokerage companies like TD Ameritrade don't offer that. One company I found that offers Solo 401k plans that includes after-tax and will uh, provide all necessary paperwork like 1099-Rs and 5500s, et cetera, is my Solo 401k. Yes, that's the company's name. Solo 401k is all they do. Their customer service was exceptional, reasonable fees to set it up. No, I don't have any affiliations with my Solo 401k company. I uh, just want to pass information to others who are looking for the same information as I did. If this violates your company's policy, you don't need to read this on the air. Uh, I don't know if this is part of the company policy or not. But yeah, I just, <laughs> whatever it, whatever Andy throws in front of me,
3: true. That's so, our po- that's our policy.
2: Yeah, that is the policy. <laughs> if Andy gives it to me, I just read it. So keep up the good work. All right, very cool. Uh, yes. Thank- yeah, Priya likes. She doesn't think I'm arrogant. Maybe <laughs> enthusiastic uh, when he's speaking. That could be true. Uh, thanks again. All right. So, my solo 401k. So, for those individual employers out there that want to do the Megatron, the back door, uh, Roth, Super Barn Door, Roth garage, garage Door, all those names. Door. Yeah because you're, you're going to have to set up a plan doc. Um, you know, the, the main templates of 401k plans um, probably don't have it. Like she said, she went to TD Ameritrade. They have a solo 401k, but you couldn't put after-tax contributions in it. You go to Fidelity, probably the same. Go to Charles Schwab, probably the same. So you have to really design your own plan. And it sounds like my solo 401k has a, a pretty good template that if you probably meet with someone and you can tell them what your goals are and what, how much money that you want to save. Um, They can construct the over 401k to suit your needs. So we don't have any affiliations, but hey, if Priya likes it, we like it.
3: (laughs) It must be good. Yeah. But people that do want to do that extra large Megatron uh, 401k, it requires that you can put after tax money in in the account. So that can be a great way to go. I, I want to talk briefly about AB 150 since you brought that up. This is only for California people. So sorry, if you don't live in California, although your state may have something similar. So what this is, a law was passed in California last year, maybe in the summer or spring, where if you had a a small business, like a one person S Corp, something like that, LLC, and there's other rules too, because you can have partners, but it's too complicated to go right now. But the concept is that you can actually pay the taxes from the profits from that S-Corp business through the business, and then you can get a tax deduction on your personal return. Because right now you guys know that taxes that you paid a franchise tax board or any state taxes for that matter are only deductible up to $10,000. So this is a workaround from that rule. And you basically had to make that payment by the filing date, which happened a couple of weeks ago.
2: So this uh, means nothing to you
3: Well, for next year. it's for next year. Yes. And you so, told you uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so for next year, yes, is um, at least in California, the, the law still stands. So, you know, there's talk about changing the federal tax law to allow state tax deductions up to 80,000 is the last number I heard, but that's been stalled. So who knows? A- anyway, if your state has something like this, and if you've got a small business, this is worth looking into
0: self-employed small business owners, you know your financial and retirement planning requires special attention. Visit the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to read a helpful guide on small business tax filing and to learn five retirement mistakes that small business owners make and how to avoid them. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to go to the show notes, access those free financial resources, ask Joe and Big Al your money questions, and to share the show and the resources. Or if you prefer a more in-depth review of your entire financial situation, click the Get an Assessment button in the podcast show notes and schedule a personalized one-on-one free financial assessment with one of the experienced professionals on Joe and Big Al's team at Pure.
2: We got April writes in from Tindley Park, Illinois. Is that right, Tindley? Tindley? I think so. All right, Tindley. Hi, Joe, Big Al, and Andy. Hope Joe had a great vacation honeymoon. Oh, boy cat's out of the bag <laughs> well you're the one
3: that said it <laughs> like, I'm, I'm i'm always very careful not to bring uh, uh, it up it
2: was like just like right at the end of the show <laughs> like, uh, people pay even, attention they, they people don't listen all the way through the show you know but, they, they listen to the first you know maybe our consumption rate is like five percent well, <laughs>
3: that's probably <laughs> true. listen to
2: Andy's opening, and then they're like, okay, that's good. That's- <laughs> it's not that good a show. <laughs> yeah, yeah this, this show sucks. I don't know why I keep subscribing. Well, thank you, April. It was, it was quite lovely. Continue to listen to the show every week and an oldie but goodie every once in a while. Oh, a little oldie but goodie, huh? Just a small non-Roth question. Thank you. I keep hearing that you should keep some cash in the house. How much we use credit cards in automatic payments for everything. It is rare that I have over $20 in my wallet. We have a fireproof safe at home that we could throw some cash into, but not sure how much or how much is enough, but not too much. I don't know. Thank you, April. All right. Big Al. What do you think? She's got the safe little hard, cold cash. Yeah. I
3: don't have any. I have a couple hundred bucks in my wallet. <laughs> That's all I have. But I'll tell you what. I'm hearing more and more people say that they they, they feel more comfortable paying cash. I think it's a, or having cash in their home. I, I think it's a little bit more of a personal thing. That the concern is if something happens really bad to the banking system or whatever. At least you have some cash to pay basic bills. I. I don't think that's a bad idea. How much you need, I, I, it's hard to say. If I had to throw out a couple of figures, I've heard people say 10,000. I've heard people say 25,000, but it's more of a personal choice.
2: Yeah, 25 grand is what I keep <laughs> in my wallet. That's, I know you have Wait a, minute, a big, who's wallet. Got the big wallet. Yeah, my, my wallet looks like George Costanza's. That's that's uh, why you have a little
3: hole dug out in your chair so you can fit the wallet on there.
2: Exactly, that's why I had back surgery. That's a really good question. I, I like to keep cash, I keep about ten thousand bucks somewhere in my house. You do, uh, yes, you got a safe, buried in the backyard, or it's I mean, your, your coffee can, your,
3: your sack drawer. Just so yeah. I know when I come over <laughs>
2: exactly. and I keep, I usually keep, I try to keep, I don't know. Maybe I'm old. School. My, my dad always carried a ton of cash. Yeah. And so, you know, on the golf course too, you know, if you gamble a little, little bit and then it's like, can I Venmo you? I'm like, no, you're not Venmoing me $20. I want cash. So, um <laughs> Got it. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. I like, I like cash. So I don't know. I, I like 10 or 20 grand, put it in the safe, get your generator. You know, get a whole bunch of bottled water too, I guess.
3: Sure. I suppose, right?
2: Yeah. Lock it up with your gun, gun safe. So yeah, I don't know. 20 grand. That's that's the answer. What do you think?
3: <laughs> okay. I'll take that.
2: All right. Let's see. We got Schmidty. I haven't heard yeah. from Smitty. We haven't. Time. Smitty in the villages. cruising around with all the ladies in his golf cart. <laughs> that's I remember, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Andy, Joe, and Big Al, can you guys talk a little bit about stable value funds, how they may compare or contrast to money market funds or short-term bond funds? I have my account with Vanguard, and they have more uh, than a few to choose from. How would I go about choosing the right one? Okay, Schmidt we're not here to give advice on stable value funds. But what I would do, you can look at Vanguard, just go into the profile of the fund, and then you can kind of see what the makeup of the the stable value fund is. They could have treasuries in there. They're probably short term bonds. It's a little bit more diversified. And if it's, I mean, we we did a whole show on stable value funds, didn't we? Didn't we?
0: Yeah, I think I think it was uh, one of our Waukesha listeners that asked about stable value funds. So yeah, I'll I'll find that podcast episode number and I'll put it in this one to go along, so that somebody can go and listen to it.
2: Yeah, well, I like that idea.
0: Yeah.
2: Saves us time. Right. Jesse, he writes in from North Dakota. Our financial advisor is suggesting we take out a fixed indexed annuity. I know you're not a big fan of annuities and we feel we would likely do better in the stock market. My husband and I would appreciate your thoughts. Don't do it. All right. Next. Our nest egg isn't large from the sounds of most callers. Yeah. Al, you're going to probably, well, you don't have that much money. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I do realize when I said it, it came out of my mouth, it was like, I didn't really mean it that way. And of course you called me on it.
2: And that's, I guess in large enough, uh, what the sounds of most callers, uh, but it is what it is. Well, Jesse, don't you worry about a thing. I'm 61. My husband's 62 and I make $95,000 a year and he makes 60,000 TSP 401k contributions are 17% with 5% match for me and 15% with 3% match for my husband. We currently have $500,000 combined in these accounts. That's a ton of cash it is that's probably is. top 10 top 10% in the country uh, when you say far. i mean you got a half a million bucks um uh... Be proud with no other accounts. Our accounts are in target date funds with a 60-40 stock bond mix. We both plan to retire at 65. He wants to start uh, taking his social security at 65. We should have about $2,200 a month or which should his, his benefits, $2,200 a month. If I wait till I'm 70, it's going to be $3,200 a month as I have a pension of roughly $2,200 a month. Once I retire, we will be debt-free in 24 months, post-retirement expenses are estimated to be $4,000 a month. Is an annuity something we should consider to guarantee a set amount of income to go along with what we will be receiving, or are there better options for us? We are both healthy and active, so don't anticipate chronic health issues in the future. But who does? That last caller did. <laughs> yeah, he's already and talking about it at age 42. <laughs> I was buying long-term care insurance at 35. 10-year <laughs> uh,
3: ten, ten term life insurance because I only got six years.
2: <laughs> uh, we both drive Toyotas and a Harley Davidson Jesse Bat- like North Dakota. I could just see it cruising along in that Harley.
3: Yeah, black bandana.
2: Can oh, you can you imagine? Black and orange for sure. Pets have all passed on. So none of them now, um, as we're enjoying traveling. Beverage of choice, bud light. Oh, I thought she was gonna say Bush Light, North Dakota. <laughs> okay. Jesse, no, absolutely not. Do not buy the fixed index annuity. That thing is just jammed with BS and it's full of commissions. And I would fire your advisor. There's you don't need the income. You are going to have a very healthy income. You have 3251 a month from yours. You're gonna have 2170 plus 2250. So Twelve times that—that's—they're going to have close to a hundred thousand dollars of fixed income. Yeah, already, right? They spend fifty grand, so <laughs> right. And he's like, "You need an annuity for more income." Right. Well, what the hell are you talking about? You, if you need income, right? Right. You have a healthy fixed income. They don't spend a lot of money, and their fixed income, their, their pension, her pension alone will cover almost three quarters of their expenses. You throw in social security on top of that. So you turn on the annuity or you buy the annuity. You get locked in. The advisor makes a huge commission on it, probably 50 grand. And he's not going to disclose that in the fixed indexed annuity, which is total garbage to say, oh, we got a benefit for you that you're going to get more income on that. And it's going to be guaranteed for life. Well, you already got a hundred grand guaranteed for your life. Do you want, right? Don't you want some walking around money? Maybe you want to buy another Harley. Maybe you want some leather chaps. <laughs>
3: <laughs> buy True. some
2: more Bud Light. I don't know. Don't lock that thing up. And, no. Go in a very conservative portfolio. Stay in cash. I don't care.
3: Yeah, more vacations, right? If you, if you take you The income
2: all- will provide that too, but you, I mean, you're going to- Annuities are for people that need income, that are worried about longevity, that don't have a lot of fixed income. You are exchanging cash for a guaranteed income for life. That's what an annuity is. It is not an investment. It is income. It's insurance. So you're buying more insurance to guarantee an in the income stream where you already have a guaranteed income stream that's covering your expenses. So why would you buy more insurance on that?
3: Yeah, I, I'm 100% with you. So, and and the the how does the fixed index annuity work? I don't know, don't know how much time we have, but if you could explain that.
2: Well, I, w- I was going to say a little comment from uh, Tommy Boy. You know, it's because it, it, here's how it's sold, right? Is that here you could get stock market like returns with no downside risk, right? Who doesn't want stock market returns with no downside risk?
3: Yeah, it sounds great.
2: It sounds great, right? But there's caps. There's you, you have to take a look at, all right, well, how much will this thing actually produce for me? What the fixed index annuity really is doing or what the insurance company is doing is buying bonds. And they're buying call options on the bond for the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or whatever or the Russell 2000. So you're picking, oh, I want the S&P 500. You're not buying the S&P 500. There's no dividends. It's an option that the insurance company is doing. They're very smart people in these insurance companies that package these products. And then they distribute it out to a sales force of insurance agents to say, here, sell this product. You'll make a lot of commission because it locks up that money. On the insurance balance sheet, because there's huge surrender penalties, and people are like, well, I don't want to pay the penalty, and I want to use it for guaranteed income, and so they're going to slowly drip some income out for me, and I'll slowly get my principal back over the next 30 years, and I'm not going to get a true IRR on that overall investment until I'm 85 years old right? So you got to be careful. You got to really understand how these products work. If someone is selling it to you that it sounds like, hey, it's a really good investment and you can get all these great returns and you're not going to have any risk and it's guaranteed. And oh, by the way, there's these riders that can give you income. An annuity is insurance for income. If you don't need the income, right? And you can control your income. I would keep it in your 401k or your TSP or, or roll it to an IRA. The issue that they're going to have is taxes. So then they can control the taxes. Now, if they turn on the annuity, they're even going to have more income. Right now, it's probably one hundred twenty five grand That's going to pop them into another tax bracket. So the income that they receive from that guaranteed annuity is going to be less than what they thought because of the taxation that they're going to have to pay. So keep it in the lump sum and then maybe slowly start converting some of these dollars out to Roth IRAs. And then that would reduce the overall re, uh, RMD. And then now you're going to have a lot more flexibility when things happen. How about if there's a long-term, I mean, they're healthy, they're riding around their Har- Harleys, but wh- who knows? Jesse might has a g- couple pops of Bud Light, trips down the stairs, she might need a little medical care, right? Well, now you got some cash that you can help pay for that. Oh, and by the way, when you take it out of the IRA, it can offset because it's a medical deduction. I mean, there's uh, so many more benefits than just leaving the dollars alone and being conservative with it and having a globally diversified portfolio than buying that crappy product.
3: All right, I'm with you. Good for you. Good good summary.
2: Okay. Got Dan writes in from Auburn, Auburn, California. IRS Publication states, a QCD is a distribution made directly by a trustee of your IRA. Other than an ongoing SEP or simple IRA to a charitable organization? Question, does that mean SEP in simple IRAs don't qualify and or what is meant by ongoing? Uh, My 1099-R distribution has the SEP simple box checked, but I have not contributed for years. Can I claim a QCD from that IRA? Last question. Excuse me. IRS (laughs) instructions states, Enter distribution amount on line 4A, enter zero, then line 4B, then enter QCD next to line 4B. How do I do that since I'm not using an online tax program and not filling out the form manually? So Dan thinks he's sitting in his CPA office <laughs> writing to his CPA and right, giving right. us the lines. And it's like, hey, my TurboTax is not, I'm, I'm doing this by hand. Right. Help me out. I got this simple IRA. I haven't contributed in years. I want to do a QCD. What the hell?
3: And I think once you started seeing IRS instructions and lines, that's why you got indigestion at that one point.
2: <laughs> I uh, you had a panic attack.
3: Well, uh, so first of all, uh, QCD, Qualified Charitable Distribution, is available. You can, you can do a, a, a contribution directly out of your IRA once you hit 70 and a half. And when you hit age 72... Now that can that can count as your RMD required minimum distribution up to $100,000. But you can't do it out of an active uh, SEP or SIMPLE. That's what ongoing. So you, yes, you can do it out of a SEP or SIMPLE IRA as long as it's not currently active. If it's an old plan or you've retired and you're not using it anymore or you're not adding to it, the fact that you have the the box checked on the on the 1099, it's iris thinks it's active. So you could try it, but I wouldn't recommend it. I, I would not I would not do it out of those accounts until you you're, you're it's you're not part of those plans, not part of an active plan. And Joe, as far as the, where to put the QCD, if you're doing it yourself in TurboTax, there's a box that you check somewhere where it says QCD, and that will put it in the right place. If you're doing it by hand, just write it in. Or if you take it to your CPA, they'll know what to do. So how's that?
2: Here's, I mean, just, you could do that too, or just roll it into an IRA if you're not using it what's i mean what's the difference just take it from a step and put it in a traditional ira then you don't have to worry about all the forms and
3: yeah be- but that would work too and then you don't have to worry about it you're exactly right
0: So, Smitty, that episode was number 367, Stable Value Funds. That was a question asked by Sharon in Waukesha. You can find that in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. In the meantime, are you subscribed to YMYW on YouTube? You can watch Joe and Big Al answer your podcast questions on video, and you can catch YMYW TV. From tax planning to social security to cryptocurrency and more, the eighth season of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show is required viewing. The latest episode is on estate planning, how to build your legacy now and beyond. Watch, subscribe, and download the Estate Plan Organizer and Survivor's Guide from the podcast show notes at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Just click the link in the description of today's episode in your favorite podcast app.
2: Hi, Joe, Alan, Andy. This is Tyler from New Jersey. Right. right. I've got a question regarding prepaying mortgage debt, but not the typical primary resident question. I have an investment property that I don't live in anymore. There's roughly 18 years left on a 20-year mortgage at 3.37%. Their current rents cover the mortgage taxes, insurance, and property management. Even with setting aside 10% for repairs, 10% for capital expenditure, and 10% for vacancy, the property still cash flows. But I don't touch the money. It just sits in the property checking account. I'm considering using some of the cash flow to prepay the mortgage, which seems like a sin in the personal finance community. Every time this comes up in a forum or Facebook group, please, people lose their minds. <laughs> However, we, <laughs> why wouldn't you pay this off sooner to have free cash flow and reduce the total interest payment? If I go ahead with this plan, I'll have the property paid off in roughly 14 years when I'm 47 years old. If rents never go up from there where they are today, I'll still have three thousand dollars a month cash flow to pay after paying my tax insurance and property management, plus. I'll save about $20,000 in interest. I understand if I took a couple hundred dollars and invested in the stock market today in a brokerage account, I could do better than 3%. But even if it grows at eight and we ignore capital gains tax, that's not going to give me $3,000 a month in passive income at age 47. Even backing out ordinary income tax on this $3,000 at the 24% tax bracket, I would still net out $2,000 a month for only a couple hundred dollars today making this extra payment today would still leave a positive monthly cash flow. Am I missing something in this FWIW? For what it's worth. Okay. Thank you, Andy. Um, (laughs) Did you know that big Al? Um,
3: I I had to think about it. I didn't know right up the bat.
2: Oh, for what it's worth. Um, (laughs) Wow. Um, I I (laughs) messed up my 401k uh, Roth IRA back door. Uh, HSA and put $5,000 a year into my brokerage account. I have a six month emergency fund and the mortgage is my only debt. Tyler. All right, Tyler, great question. Big Al has had a lot of investment property and I think it really depends on your goals, but I'll I'll let you take a crack and I'll give you my opinion.
3: Yeah. So here's my feeling is the reason why financial planners will tell you not to is you're paying a mortgage of 3.37% and the Stock market, maybe over time, globally diversified portfolio might earn six or seven percent. So there's an arbitrage there that you can keep, or you you create some of that extra profit. You accumulate a down payment. You buy another property. You grow your wealth that that much more quickly. That which of course the problem with that is it's more risk as well. But if I take a step, that's the but that's the kind of the financial planning uh, community. I would take a step back. Me personally, I. I don't really care if my mortgage is paid off on a rental while I'm working, but it would be really cool if it's not if it's there is no mortgage when I retire because that's when I'm going to need the cash flow. So I'm actually in favor of that idea,
2: even though I would I know that I would be missing out on the on the arbitrage. So there's two things. There's arbitrage, right? That you're getting a higher rate of return, probably in another investment due to the the very low interest rate that he's locked in on for the next 20 years, right? And interest rates are going up and so on and so forth. So it's like, okay, I don't know if we'll ever see interest rates at 3% or 3.5% in the next 15, 20 years. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we will, maybe we won't, but it, it's a low rate, right? Historically. So it, it probably makes sense to keep that, but I see where his head's at, but he's gotta look at things maybe a little bit differently because he's got a mortgage on it. What are you holding that property for right now? Are you holding it for growth or are you holding it for income, right? Because if he's holding it for growth, well then you probably don't wanna pay off the mortgage because then that's leverage, right? Because you're looking at the growth of the overall equity versus if you pay it down, your percentage of growth is going to be a lot higher because your cap rate or cash on cash is is a lot higher when you have debt. And then you put that money into a side fund. And I get what he's saying. He's like, I'm doing the math. and in When I'm 47, this side fund that grows at 8% is not going to produce $3,000 a month. Well, that side fund at that point per, could probably pay off the entire mortgage, and you still have a, excess capital on top of the mortgage. So it it really depends on what math that he's running and what his goals are. If he wants to retire at forty seven and needs the, the the cash, well then yeah, pay it off. And if that's your goal to have additional cash flow at forty seven, then by all means. But I don't know if he wants to retire at sixty five. It's it, it it might make sense, you know, to 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 keep the note.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. It all depends upon retirement. If 47 is the retirement date, then then I like the plan. If 65 is, then I would just let it run its course, use that extra money to, to build up reserves, to invest in other assets. So yeah, to me, the, having a mortgage on a rental is actually just fine as long as the the rental income covers the payments and you don't necessarily need the cash flow because you're still working but it's a whole different ballgame when you retire you might want that cash flow i think paying a couple hundred bucks a month extra it psychologically is a little easier than making a lump sum payment you know when you retire although in, in his case he's only gaining about four years so it's not that big a deal
2: Hey, run me. In. It's we have a little bit of time. Run, run, an example. Let's say of like a cap rate or cash on cash, and you know when you look at real estate with mortgage versus not on a growth angle. So he's still a young guy, and it's like okay, well maybe he wants to continue to build his wealth versus getting cash flow. So if he has the note versus not, the rate of return on that property from a growth perspective is is, is going to be higher.
3: Okay. Yeah. Let me just do a real simple example. So $100,000 property, which I know you can't find, but the math is easy. So we'll go $100,000 property. We'll say that you put down 20%, $20, $20,000. Okay. Or actually let's do 10% easier math. 10%, 10%, you put down $10,000. So now the property uh, goes up 5%. So it was worth 100,000. One year later, it's worth 105,000. So it increased in value by $5,000, but you put a down payment of $10,000. And now that now your equity, which is the difference between the value and the mortgage is 15,000, right? So now you got 15. So you made $5,000 of growth on a $10,000 investment. So that's like a 50% uh, growth rate. Of course, you have to figure out the cash flow and debt payments. But if you can cash flow of the property, which is hard to do in many locations, not as hard in other locations, but if you can can cover the payments, cover the mortgage payment and other expenses, that's a great deal, right? You can earn 50% on your money, maybe you break even otherwise. And that's, but the next year when you make 5,000, now it's 5,000 gain compared to 15,000 of equity. So that rate of return goes down. And some people after a period of time, they think about, well, maybe I should sell because I've got a lot of equity. I could buy more properties with that equity. And that's how growth accelerates with real estate. It's also how you lose a lot of money quickly when the market goes down. I have personally experienced both of those things. When it's going up, it's super fun. When it's going down, it's not a lot of fun either because your equity evaporates really quickly with debt when properties are going down.
2: Yeah. Uh, thank you. Because if let's say he paid cash for it and a hundred thousand dollars, and it's but then he gets that five percent rate of return, or now it's worth hundred five. It's a five percent rate of return versus a fifty percent rate of return. But it's a double-edged sword. So that's why you need time. So he's young. He's got time. And does he have cash flow? Right. So it's cash flowing. He's already got the, the the reserves for vacancies. He's got the reserves for repairs. He's, I mean, he's a smart guy. He's got his stuff together. And so if there's a, a recession or if there's a dip in the overall real estate market, can he continue to cash flow the property fine with the debt service? And if it's if it's too tight, well then yeah, then you pay that thing off and cash flow it and live happily ever after. Right. So it, it depends on risk tolerance. It depends on your goals. It depends on your other assets, so on and so forth. So we can't really look at it in a bubble, but either answer's right, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So when you're in the Facebook forums and they're losing their minds, um, <laughs> those guys are... <laughs> yeah, don't, don't,
3: don't, don't go there. It's not, it's not worth your sanity. But I, I would say, I'll just summarize by saying, if your goal is to hold this property forever, And your goal is cash flow. And this is a good property for cash flow. Then your strategy of having it paid off by 47, if that's when you want to retire, I'm all for that. I think that's a great idea.
2: All right. Michael writes in from Escondido, California. He goes, I live in California and I inherit a house in Florida as part of my uncle's trust. I was wondering what my tax hit would be once I sell this inherited house. And also I plan to sell my house in California in about a year and a half or so when I retire. Will the look back requirements affect me when I sell my California home, which I reside in? If I get slaughtered. Wow, that's aggressive, Michael. <laughs> slaughtered me. Uh, maybe I can look into renting one of the houses. Thank you. And I look forward to clarity on this.
3: I assume he meant if if I get slaughtered in taxes.
2: I hope so. So we inherited a house. All right. We can talk a little bit about this. I don't know what uncle's trust means. So was it revocable, irrevocable? What Was it kind of a complex trust? Or I'm guessing, Alan, that it's just probably was a standard revocable living trust. Michael was the beneficiary of the trust or one of the beneficiaries. And he inherited this nice house in Florida. So what happens at death? is that there's a full step up in tax basis in most cases, depending on the titling of it. But I'm assuming he probably got a full step up or maybe half step up, but let's just assume a full step up. What does that mean? Uncle Larry bought it for $100,000. Uncle Larry dies and it's worth 500000 and Michael is the beneficiary of that home and he sells it. Well, Michael's new cost basis is 500000 So when he sells it, there will be no tax due or if he sells it a year later and now it's worth 525000 well, then there would be a taxable gain only on the 25000 not the cost basis of when Uncle Larry purchased it.
3: And the only time that that's not true, if it was in a, like an AB trust, a, a, and so you have an irrevocable part. And so that the basis in that particular case is, is the same as what it was at the time that was set up when the first spouse passed away. And there are other types of irre, irre, irrevocable trust as well. So but usually, Joe, you're right. Usually it's a living trust. You get a full step up in basis. You sell it. You've got very little tax to pay, virtually no tax to pay if you sell it within a short period of time.
2: And if you sell your house here in Escondido, California, well, that's your primary residence. So then you get the 121 tax exclusion on your primary. As long as you lived in the house, what, two out of the last five years? And if you're single, you get to write off 250,000 of gain. And if you're married, it's half a million, so 500,000. So let's say you bought your house in Escondido for 500,000, it's worth a million dollars today and you're married and you've lived in that Escondido house two out of the last five, and you sell it, there would be no tax there either. So I don't know if he's gonna get slaughtered. I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so either, in in all
3: likelihood. And if you sell that Escondido home for 1.2 million, then you've got a $700,000 gain, you take away the 500,000, you only pay tax on 200,000. So that's
2: how that rule works. All right, hey, that's it for us. Uh, Thank you, Andy, welcome back from your vacation.
0: Thank you and Al, great to have you with us from Hawaii. I'm really glad that we were able to make this happen today.
2: Yeah, very fun. Yeah. Yeah. First segment. Just killed it right <laughs> the You
3: can throw that in the
2: can. <laughs> All right. That's it for us. We'll see you again next week. Show Scott Your Money Well.
0: Al's wife, Annie, and more from Smitty from the villages in the derails at the end of the episode, so stick around if you're a fan of the total nonsense side of YMYW. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Click the Get an Assessment button in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-994-6257 and schedule a free financial assessment at a date and time convenient for you no matter where you are in the country. Chances are one of the experienced financial professionals Professionals at Pure will be able to identify strategies to help you create a more successful retirement. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision.
2: Oh my, look at your wife. She's crawling in the back. I love it. Oh, she's opening up. The oh,
3: you can see her head poking up. <laughs> but watch the watch the door open. Oh, there she is.
0: <laughs> Hi, Annie. Oh, that is
3: so classic. They loved it. Uh, the little hat going along the counter. Yeah. I'm going to retire and hang out with Smitty. Well, I think, you've said that, that before. I, I think you should.
2: I, I, I live vicariously through Smitty
3: i think he's got a he's got a golf buddies i think there's only three of them you know him and two others they're waiting for you joe to join them. i'm pretty yeah. sure he's
2: like, the Porsum's coming Smitty. <laughs> Badass. i i didn't even see this which smitty from the villages he goes oh, by the way i still listen to the derails at half speed sounds like happy hour
3: so does that mean we sound
2: slosh? Right. <laughs> how are you doing
0: Wow, that's gonna be at like quarter speed. Wow, yeah. slow.
2: Yeah, <laughs> very slow. Alexa, remember would we do that. Oh yeah, listen to our podcast <laughs> and also the Alexa will turn on.
3: Yeah, we had many of those. <laughs> Minus hey Google, so if you say that, it'll it'll go on.
2: It, it'll go on. Got it. I wonder if uh, that that one couple still listens to our podcast while they're eating dinner. <laughs> <laughs> nice candlelight dinner oh hey honey can you put yeah. some, some
3: and then and then you say alexa and it's pauses what would you like i want to go back to Y M W. oh oh boy